Hey, stay tuned after the episode to hear details about the future of the show and other cool stuff coming in this new year. Previously on Solve the World. Captain. Isaac, I'm eager to hear your idea. Lizard. So am I. First mate. Go ahead, Isaac. Tell us. Father Thomas. Yes, I for one would very much like to hear. Sir Isaac. The Blackstone. The Kaaba of Mecca. Jen. The what? Sir Isaac. Various calculations purport that that cube, that place, is one of the seven strong points on Earth. First mate. Seven strong points? Gravity is not what we think it is, and it's not dispersed evenly on Earth. Roughly speaking, the Earth is most bulbous at the equator. Therefore, there's a higher gravitational field there. The Earth then flattens at the poles. But there are seven notable anomalies, places where the gravitational field is not what it should be. Lex. And Mecca's one of those places? What's she doing? The narrator quivers. The bloody woman holds the position for ten seconds. Twenty. The edge of the sun drips under the horizon's bow. The woman, Jennifer clearly recognized as Lilith Babbitt, flew up into the sky. Solve the World, a fictional adventure told in 100 episodes. Episode 50, Event Horizon. Right now, Rabbi Levi is reading this passage in his copy of the Tanakh. They serve their idols, which became a snare for them. They sacrifice their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan and the land was polluted with blood. Psalm 106, 36 through 38. You know about Schrodinger's cat, right? It's dead and alive, simultaneously. It only solidifies in this life as one of the two options once someone looks at it. Or, I don't know, something like that. There's a dead cat, there's a living cat. It's the same cat. Opening the box to see for yourself the duplicitous nature of the beast casts it fully from potential to automatic static eternality. Or something like that. The point is... 
until it actually happens, until someone opens the box to look at the cat itself. Somehow, the cat is both dead and alive. In Mecca, the ancient city nestled in present-day Saudi Arabia, Jennifer Dash is currently dead and alive. She is dead. She is alive. Her blood paints the walls and floor of the most sacred site in all of Islam, the walls of the perfect cube that is the Kaaba. The reason her blood drips freely is because Sir Isaac, shrewd mathematician that he is, has had a personal breakthrough in the last week since Lilith Babbitt ascended into the heavens. All his life, he believed in the immutable laws of math and logic. Babbitt just broke that framework. From the wake of the viral video, and of course the reality of the lonely plague that's giving rise to humanity's first truly existential threat since the height of the Cold War, Sir Isaac conceived to hedge his bets. There was a way yet to think of magic quite logically. Reality was clear. Lilith Babbitt's ascension broke the laws of physics, and nothing, absolutely nothing in the natural world predicted such an astonishment. Unless, according to Isaac's brain, there were other unknown variables involved. Namely, unseen agents, distant forces. While most of nature is predictable enough to a mathematical mind like Sir Isaac's, human volition remained the most chaotic, severe condition in all of existence. Put more straightly, Isaac didn't understand people. Folks have weird preferences. Some collect figurines, some drink obscene amounts of coffee, which is, let me remind you, just hot water sifted over beans. Folks say they favor one color over another. This is wholly unpredictable. Sir Isaac could know every detail about a person's anatomy and even their environmental influences and yet he would remain absolutely clueless when trying to distinguish or predict a person's favorite color. Sir Isaac's equations allowed for, under certain conditions, an event horizon such as was caught on tape at Stonehenge during the summer solstice. But there were, on the surface, severe problems. Just standing at Stonehenge during the solstice should not have produced the event. Not now, not ever. There just aren't enough gravitons there. Not enough. I'll say it again. There were not enough gravitons there. So then, how'd Babbitt do it? There were only two options available that Isaac could imagine. Either, for some reason, during this particular solstice, by some bizarre concurrences, there were an unnatural, unfathomable amount of gravitons there to propel Babbitt through the event horizon, in which case the blood on the stones was utterly unimportant, or there were unknown agents involved. Call them unseen agents, call them gods, call them superhumans, call them Mother Nature. It didn't matter. What did matter was that apparently they were fickle. These agents have favorite colors, and they apparently respond to the spilling of virgin blood in the hot zones, the thin places where, due to high volumes of the subatomic particles known as gravitons, the distance between our plane of existence and theirs is, well, thinner. Five people sitting in a circle in a cabin in the woods. Bashrina, 
the Saudi Nigerian hot air balloon pilot, Jen, Miles, and newcomer Marshall Winston, along with the resident Professor X of the assembled team of raggedy misfits, Sir Isaac. I still don't get why you need me, Jen asked Sir Isaac, the group bonding together as they went over their plan of attack. When I first asked you, in Peru, I only wanted you because of your youth and dexterity. Dexterity? Jen said incredulously. I needed a specimen more suited to physical maneuvering than me. But, but now your name is everywhere. The world is looking for you. Now, you can go the way of Miss Babbitt. You can escape. 8. When escaping, know beforehand what you're escaping into. Wait, wait, Marshall butted in. Explain it again. Uh, one more time, please. Marshall was a bright enough guy. He'd understood the game plan the first time Sir Isaac had walked them through it. But he was listening now for incongruous details. The bizarreness of the situation caused him the first go-round to focus on the big picture. This caused him to miss some of the component parts. The force of gravity is exerted through tiny particles called gravitons. Until recently, they've only been theoretical. No one's found them. When my colleagues and I did find them, we discovered why they're so hard to capture. They fall in and out of our dimensions, our reality. There are places on Earth where these gravitons reappear, re-fall into our dimension, if you will, in greater number, in greater volume. I like to call these thin places. Stonehenge is a thin place, Jen said, picking up on the narrative, and so is the Kaaba in Mecca. If enough matter is surrounded by these gravitons, when the gravitons jump, or fall, into one of the other planes of existence, the gravitons carry the matter with it. We think that's what happened with Babbitt, Miles added. So then, we go to this Kaaba, and then... What, exactly? Again? Miles picked up the mantle and continued. That's where Bashrina here becomes our true Persian princess. Since Muhammad, one family line has had the keys to the Kaaba. Get in with that family, and they can open the door for you anytime they want. Bashrina's negotiated with them. Day after tomorrow, they'll open the doors for us right at sunset. Because there's a higher probability of there being more gravitons at sunset? Am I hearing that right? Yes, said Isaac. And okay, so we get Jennifer in there, in the Kaaba, and then what? That's where it's nice to have you with me as backup, Miles said. The doorkeeper of the Kaaba will open the door and want all of us to go in. We will, and then you and I and Bashrina will convince the key handler and whatever ensemble he brings with him, to close the doors for a moment with Jen and Isaac alone inside. Ah, and why are you staying inside? Marshall said, staring at Isaac. I need to observe with my own eyes. Yeah, Miles continued. We get the clerics out and wait while Jen says bon voyage with the device. At the center of the circle of five rested a small wooden box. Why can't we just turn it on now? Isaac had previously explained that his engineer friend created the device for him. Essentially, it worked like a magnet for gravitons. 
it produced a certain seismic vibration using photons or beta rays or something like that to propel gravitons toward it. Problem was, gravitons have the habit of pulling stuff with them. So if you have a room with a regular amount of gravitons in it, the device turns on and is immediately shorted and destroyed by the density of non-graviton particles that are hurled into it. The little wooden box is essentially asking an anvil to come rushing at it. The device only works in a place with a percentage of gravitons over 0.007% of the atmosphere. Even then, it'll only work for a second or two at the most. But that should be plenty of time. Okay, I get it, but if it works just like it works for Babbitt, then wouldn't Ni Jen, Marshall stumbled a bit in calling Naima Jen, be thrusted through the roof? There was a long silence. No, the math says that what we saw was just an illusion of the light. Babbitt was pulled into the other realm. Instantaneously. The soaring into the sky was just a... a reflection through dimensions. Sir Isaac was lying through his teeth, but he was the only person in the room who had any idea what he was talking about. So the lie stood firm. I'll just... poof? Into thin air? Jen asked. Yes. Well, I want to go with her, Marshall blurted out. Why does she have to go alone? Too heavy. Only one can go, Isaac replied. Can we rinse and repeat? She'll go, then I'll turn the device back on, and then I'll follow. We only have one device, and it'll only work once. Silence in the room again. Do you want to do it? Miles asked Jen. You don't have to. No one's asking you to do anything you don't want to. So, I go. Then what happens? What will all of you do? Once we know it works, we'll build another device. Repeat the experiment and look for ways to expand the operation. The plan suddenly dawned on Marshall. He saw the whole of humanity before his eyes. It's an ark. You want to use it to save the human race from extinction. Sir Isaac smiled. Yes, this is something of a practice run. The Lonely Plague hasn't reached the Eastern Hemisphere, but it will. We can't stop it. No one can. This is a way out. A way to escape death, Miles added. How many realms are there? Is it possible I end up somewhere different than Lilith? No one in the room knew the answer, but I do, and I'll tell you the secret. There are three realms. Three planes of existence. Can I sleep on it, at least? Jen said. Absolutely, Isaac replied. In the morning, we need to go, with or without you. Okay. It just so happened that Bashrina had a pair of handcuffs with her. There were plenty of rooms in the cabin for everyone to get their own bed and TV and what have you. Marshall was given an option. He could be escorted out of the cabin, left behind from the upcoming adventure, or he could be handcuffed to his bed, for safety's sake. He agreed to the handcuffs. Late in the night, Jen and Miles sat on a couch in her bedroom, side by side. If I do this, what will you do? I'll work with, with Isaac to build more devices, get as many people through the void as possible. What do you think's on the other side? I think... I think whatever it is, 
It has to be better than this Earth. Why? Because there's got to be a place where all the answers to our questions are. I assume the place that has the answers will also have comfort. Comfort? Yeah, comfort. I've never been able to capture it. If I stay, would you stay with me? Why do you ask? Miles said, clearly fishing. I need your help. With what? I think... I think this world can still be saved. Whoa, big words for a teenager. Did you mean it, Miles? What you said? You know, before? Yeah, I meant it. Miles leaned over and kissed Jen on the forehead. I'm with you. I'm for you. Through whatever and wherever. Whenever. I have a plan to fix everything. And it doesn't involve jumping through a wormhole. Yeah? And what's that? I'm gonna kill the Pied Piper. I have to go to bed. You need sleep. Even if you're not going through with it, someone will. I promised Isaac I'd help. We'll see you in the morning. Miles walked out of the room, leaving Jen alone with her thoughts. Her plan had upset him. The coming hours, mostly spent trying to sleep, worked heavily on Jennifer Dash. A few hours after leaving the New Grange Druidry, Jen's body was beginning to revolt. She scratched and scratched and scratched, but the sweeping calmness that usually accompanied the tattoo itch wasn't paying the bills. Jennifer Dash was in withdrawals. The burning sensation, for some reason, started in her calves. It felt as though someone was exchanging her bones for hot wax. The thrusting burn felt like it was coming from the core of her being, her innermost parts, the marrow of her bones. Jen got up and walked across the cabin to Marshall's room. In the foyer, in the dark, Marsharina stared at the passing Jen, eyes wide open, unmoving and unasleep. Jen didn't notice. Marshall? A twisting, seething Marshall Winston responded. Yeah? Are you feeling what I'm feeling? Yeah, I'd say so. When's it gonna stop? I don't know. Jen vomited on the carpet. Poor Marshall Winston now had to deal with being handcuffed to the bedpost, his seizure-like withdrawals, his very full bladder, and now the echoing stench of Jen's throw-up. It was an unpleasant time. Jen returned to her bed. Amazingly, Jennifer Dash found a way to slip past the reverberating withdrawals and somehow fall fast asleep, wherein, as always, she was greeted by the same delightful fable. To return to the high mountain, the great land of the king, what an experience. That was the place Jen wanted to go. In the morning, Miles sat at the foot of Jen's bed. Hey, I have a thought. Miles, do you have something to take for... for... addiction or something? Here. He handed Jen a glass of water and four pills. Marshall woke up a couple hours ago. We were surprised you were able to sleep through the pain. Anyway, these seem to be helping him. Jen unhesitantly gobbled down the pills and water as the process of waking up was now hurtling with it a fresh fusion of bone-ringing pain. 
So here's what I'm thinking. Either the place you're going to is better than here, or it's the same. Okay? If it's the same, then there's going to be a Pied Piper figure on the other side too. Like a, like a mirror world. There'll be the same demons on the other side of the wall. Another Leviathan to slay. And if there's not, if there's no Piper, and it's just another messed up world, then your theory's wrong. There's not just one person at the epicenter of all bad things. There's no need to come back. But what if it is better? If it is a better place, then you can find a way back. You can be an ambassador to us from over there. An ambassador? Jen repeated. An ambassador? You and I both know what happens next. The truth of the matter is that even inexpressibly huge decisions such as should I go through the fabric of space and time come down to relatively mundane motivations. For Jen, after she woke up, took a shower, she came into the kitchen where four faces stared at her, each hoping for her to say yes. That peer pressure led her to one singular word. Yes. They drove to a small airport, where Bashrina piloted them in a small plane to the big continent. Somewhere in Belgium, the five sat down, only to walk across another tarmac and strap into another, slightly larger private aircraft that Bashrina would use to whisk them away to the Middle East, to Asia, to Saudi Arabia, to Mecca. The whole trip with the quick European layover took just under 12 hours. No one said much to one another up in the air. However, Miles Fod did place an old friend into Jen's lap. The small little book entitled 50 People Whom I Pity. Flipping through the pages, Jen thought it odd that several of the 50 names listed looked completely new to her. Jen had thought she'd read through the whole thing, but apparently she'd missed a few of these names. Strange. At the hotel they booked that night, all five members were stuck in a singular large suite. Miles was watching TV when he called Jen over. It was a BBC News report, another deep dive analysis of what happened to the now mythical Lilith Babbitt. Forensics had decidedly concluded that the blood splattered on the monoliths by Babbitt belonged to none other than the lost boy of Liechtenstein himself, young little Robin. They showed a picture of the boy. Jen immediately teared up, staring at the little martyr. A montage of Lichtensteinians placing flowers by his grave flooded the program. The narration hung over the mute shots of the boy's funeral, as well as his grieving stepfather, the mayor of Vaduz that Jen and Ludwig alone knew was abominable. Then, an interview. A woman named Lara came on camera. You are Robin's aunt, yes? Yes. And I know who is responsible for his death. And who is that? Your papers keep calling her Jennifer Collin. But her real name is Jennifer Dash. Ah, oh, crap. Jen said, If we don't send you to Wonderland tomorrow, we're gonna have to get you a new name, Marshall said. She already has one, Miles added as Bashrina handed Jen a passport. It was a fake, but it sure looked good. Jennifer Darzi, citizen of Saudi Arabia, 
married to Yusuf Darzi. Just then, the interview broke. The BBC went to a direct address of the President of the United States live. That's odd, Marshall said. Words on the screen flashed. Emergency. Breaking news. Emergency. Good afternoon, the President said. Minutes ago, over the Atlantic Ocean, our Air Force shot down a nuclear missile, headed, assuredly, for our continent. There is no mistake. This is an act of war. There is no doubt. There is no question. The missile was a Russian warhead. In the last few weeks, our intelligence has provided substantial proof that the virus referred to as the Lonely Plague came to us by way of Russian experimentation off the coast of Peru. America, today, it appears, as an act of cowardice, Russian authorities have decided to erase the plague by destroying our homeland. At this time, we are unsure if there are more planned attacks, but our Air Force, our Navy, is prepared for anything. Due to these chilling events, events unprecedented in human history, America has no choice but to defend herself. The flag of freedom must wave on. We shall endure. Until the Russians subject themselves to an international tribunal, I have no choice but to ask Congress to declare war against the Russian Federation. God be with us. God be with you. Stay vigilant. Stay safe. The president walked away from his podium. For several seconds, the camera stayed tuned in on the empty podium. Turn it off, Isaac said. We all need our sleep. Right now, we have four known commodities going into the event horizon. Bashrina, the fifth crew member, the silent one, we know pretty much nothing about. But Miles, Marshall, Jen, and Isaac, we have something of a handle on. A cursory overview of their four motivations would do us well at this juncture. Let's start with Isaac. Sir Isaac, mathematician by trade, designer of humanity's last hope by night. Isaac had been seeking to find a way to Mecca long before the Lonely Plague hit and before World War III was declared. We know he's brilliant, but we also know he can kill when he needs to. After all, he was the first to slay one of the plagued zombies of the known triangle. Though he lacks sufficient street skills, he is cunning and shrewd when he needs to be. He was, to be clear, handpicked by Lilith Babbitt once upon a time, and Lilith had very specific reasons for choosing the crew she chose. At the Event Horizon, Sir Isaac wants a first-hand experience. His whole life now, from discovering gravitons and observing their qualities and quirks, has been amping up to this one moment. He will not be abated. Miles fought. If we are to believe his words, Miles loves Jen. That may be true, but ultimately his allegiance is not with her, nor with Sir Isaac. 
His constant twisting and maneuvering is an effort to have his cake and eat it too. He wants to remain faithful to all parties, and he believes in himself enough to have convinced himself that he'll be able to pull it off. He'll be able to save Jennifer Dash from this horrible world before it dies, help Sir Isaac build an ark before the metaphorical floods completely drown the world, and remain faithful to his master's goals. As long as no one throws a curveball tomorrow, and the device works, Miles will be exceedingly happy, maybe even comforted, for the first time in who knows how long. Marshall Winston. The poor skeptic is scrambling to keep up. Never did he expect this avalanche. Parallel worlds, Saudi Arabia, a worldwide pandemic, and nuclear holocaust. It's a lot for a guy to take in. 24 hours ago, all Marshall had to worry about was keeping Naime safe and maybe learning her secrets. As it is seemingly turning out, Naime is just a feather in a tornado. She knows nothing, but everyone wants their hands on her. And, though he hates to admit it to himself, Marshall Winston does too. Additionally, Marshall's trying not to let the excruciating withdrawals imbalance his perception of reality. Right now, more than anything, he wants the shouting pain in his bones to vanish. He wants his tattoo scratching to heal him, to make a difference. He wants freedom. That leaves us then with our own Jennifer Dash, rogue agent of all too many bosses. How quickly she slid right back into the arms of another boss barking crazy orders at her. She, too, is trying valiantly to see beyond her very physical pain. But beyond the pain, there's an unavoidable seduction to tomorrow's plan. Escape. Escape not just from the reporters and myriad fans obsessed with Lilith Babbitt's final trick, but escape from her ever-deepening guilt. Seeing Robin's face on the TV tonight. Gah, what do you do with that? Answer. You escape. Remember Schrodinger's cat? In the morning, Bashrina left the hotel first. An hour later, she returned. The five ate some local cuisine and headed out. Jen and Bashrina encased themselves in hijabs. They took a taxi and walked to where they met three men. Few words were spoken. The Kaaba, when seen online or on TV, doesn't itself look like a very impressive structure. But, in person, it is transcendent. The perfect black square. It's 40 feet tall, and standing near it, you can only imagine what the Tawaf must feel like. Circling the structure over and over again, counterclockwise with up to two million reverent pilgrims. Wow. They walk up to the structure. And, rather unceremoniously, one of the three men opens the only door to the black cube. Everyone enters. Jen was surprised that although the exterior is a foreboding black, the inside is a magically vibrant green. There are some engraved scriptures, a couple of old things hanging on a string above you, but for the most part, after all is said and done, the room is just a simple windowless box. 
Bashrina, speaking in Arabic, somehow convinces everyone to just up and leave Jen and Sir Isaac alone inside the cube. Just for a moment, the door closes. It's completely black. Isaac has anticipated this and turns on a flashlight. He uses the light to pull out his little wooden box. He places it on the ground, in the center of the room. He tells Jen to sit on her knees in front of the box. She follows his orders. Isaac lifts the wooden lid of the box open, revealing a convincing system of wires and gears. He turns a knob. At first, all Jen sees is some gears cranking, but then the thing speeds up. Isaac says it's warming up, that it'll get going in a minute or two. Jen's heart is racing. Is she about to die? Is this what death looks like, feels like? Is this crossing the void, going to heaven? A small light from the middle of the spinning gear starts breaking out and expanding. Bigger and bigger the light comes. Isaac has positioned himself just in back of Jennifer. He stands above her, pulls a box cutter out from underneath his tongue where he had it hidden, and he puts it in his hand. Jen's completely entranced by this expanding, beautiful, mysterious light. It's about to engulf, to welcome her, to welcome her past the horizon. Isaac slips his hand past Jen's neck. In one fluid motion, he cuts her neck. Jen's blood splatters out on the marbled floor of the Kaaba and onto the wooden box. Sir Isaac's hedged his bets. He's added virgin sacrifice to his dowry of mathematical potentials. His offering is accepted and he's enveloped into the next realm. Jen lies dead in her blood. This is what happens. This is what happens, that is, until it doesn't. Remember, Jen is the cat, both dead and alive. That is, until we actually look at the event horizon and find only one finality. We're only but halfway through our story. Of course we're not going to find a dead Jen at the center of half the world's prayers. Not now, not yet. No. But it almost happens like this. You see, it all starts the same way. morning, Bashrina left the hotel first. An hour later, she returned. The five ate some local cuisine and headed out. Jen and Bashrina encased themselves in hijabs. They took a taxi and walked to where they met three men. Few words were spoken. The Kaaba, when seen online or on TV, doesn't itself look like a very impressive structure. But in person, it's transcendent. The perfect black square. 
It's 40 feet tall, and standing near it, you can only imagine what the Tawaf must feel like. Circling the structure countless times counterclockwise with up to two million reverend pilgrims. Wow. They walk up to the structure. One of the men opens the door rather unceremoniously. Inside now. As soon as they enter, everyone else distracted by the green marble decor, Marshall Winston whispers into Sir Isaac's ear, You let me stay and watch, or I'll kill you right now. His eyes, Marshall's eyes. Isaac turns around to stare at them and decides instantaneously that the man is not lying. Sir Isaac very much fears death, and the man is not lying. They don't waste much time looking around. Basharina, speaking Arabic, somehow convinces the group to leave Jen and Isaac alone inside. It may have something to do with the ungodly amount of money Basharina forwarded into the man's account that morning. Marshall makes for the exit right away, but pulls back into the door's shadow. Amazingly, no one notices until they're outside. But by then, though, it's too late. Marshall Winston's been left inside the Kaaba. The room is pitch black. Jen's heart beats out of its socket. No one can predict what's about to happen. Where's she gonna go? She's like an astronaut headed for an unknown destination, some Atlantean planet no one's ever seen before. Sir Isaac chooses to not turn on his flashlight. Rather, he feels for the pillars at the center of the cube. He rests the box on the floor just beside the pillars, feeling everything as he goes. He flips the box open, turns the knob. Marshall is silent, staying put by the door in the darkness. Jen, I've turned it on. It'll take a moment to warm up. You'll see a light. When you do, please get on your knees just in front of it. It won't take long. Jen begins to see a spark of something. She motions towards it, sits on her knees. Breathe in, breathe out. It'll all be over soon. This is the last moment, Jen thinks to herself. Using the box's light as a guide, Isaac steps up behind Jen. He delicately pulls the box cutter from out of his mouth. He holds it in his hand. Marshall has tiptoed behind Isaac and is choking him. Jen turns back. She sees the look of hate in Marshall's eyes. He's a demon. He looks like an evil Avenger, the Grim Reaper. He chokes Isaac. Slapping his hand back, Isaac jolts the box cutter into Marshall's abdomen. Frightened by the pain and shock, Marshall releases Isaac. The light from the box is eclipsing everyone now. Jen can hardly see anything. It's so bright. Expanding and expanding, the light goes. Brighter and brighter it becomes. Marshall pulls the box cutter out of his stomach. Isaac turns towards Jen, arms outstretched, thinking to choke her. A last-ditch effort to sacrifice her to the unseen agents. Marshall takes the box cutter and slices the back of Isaac's neck. Badly. Isaac turns. Marshall slices again. This time the jugular is pierced. Light enveloping everything. Light and virgin blood on the ground. The Graviton box is warmed up, and the offer is accepted.
Jen's not in the Kaaba anymore. She's somewhere else. A big room, but not the room she was just in. The walls are a deep mahogany. There's a beautiful bed, perfectly wooden besides the mattress and sheets, a wooden rocking chair besides it. In the corner, there's a door. It should lead to the closet, Jen thinks. She's compelled to open it. It is a closet. But crammed in there are no clothes. No hangers. Just a wooden bench, a piece of paper, well, more like a piece of papyrus, and sitting on a wooden stool beside the bench, hunched over the papyrus with a fountain pen in hand, is... Jennifer Dash. Jennifer stares at Jennifer. There's a difference. The Jennifer on the stool has her natural hand. There's no skin color difference, no marked scars. She's an original. She's also writing pretty vigorously on her paper papyrus. But Jen can't decipher the words from the angle she's at. Hello, Jen, the writing Jennifer says to the intruder, not looking up, still writing. Where? Where? Where are we? I'm not you, says the doppelganger. I know, Jen says dumbly. Jen, what happened to you? Um, I don't know. Think about it. What happened to you? I, I got up, I, I got mixed in, mixed up into things I don't understand. Well, uh, I don't know about that. I think you understood them as much as anyone else did. Why do you look like me? I wanted this moment to be about you. Not anyone else. Oh. I didn't want the distraction of someone else, Jennifer. This is just you taking some time to reckon with yourself. Where are we? We are in a closet. What are you writing? The other Jen stopped writing, looked up at our Jen, smiled, and handed the paper to her. Jen began reading aloud what was on the paper. Isaac has positioned himself just in back of Jennifer. He stands above her, pulls the box cutter out from underneath his tongue, puts it in his hand. Jen's entranced by this mysterious light. It's about to engulf, to welcome her past the horizon. Isaac slips his hand past Jen's neck. In one fluid motion, he cuts her neck. Jen's blood splatters out on the marbled floor of the Kaaba and onto the wooden box. Sir Isaac's hedged his bets. He's added virgin sacrifice to his dow dowry of mathematical potentials. His offering is accepted, and he's enveloped into the next realm. Jen lies dead in her blood. That's all the paper says so far. What is this? This is the other outcome. Did I die? Is this... 
Is this the afterlife? Did Is this what happened to me? No. Sir Isaac was going to sacrifice you, the way Lilith Babbitt sacrificed Robin. But Marshall Winston stopped him. Oh. So... It worked? Right? Maybe? Other gen size. <sighs> All that can be settled in time. Right now, in this precious moment, we need to talk about who you've become. Why? Because you've changed. Everyone changes. That's true, but you have to have the heart and mind of a child to enter through heaven's gates. Is that what this is? The gate to heaven? No. But see what you're doing? That's what we like about you. Your curious nature. Your childlike faith has gotten you in trouble so many times. But that's a big part of what life is all about. I, I don't understand what you want from me. You're on a warpath right now. Is that who you want to be? Someone who makes the mission of their heart be about killing someone? But if I kill the Piper, then the world will be a better place. Maybe, but it would be ruined for you. You're not a murderer, Jennifer Dash. If you knew me, you'd know that I am, Jen said defiantly. Tiff's death was not your fault. It doesn't matter. I still did it. Even if you did, you can't control the past. And if you let the past define who you choose to be today, then your life will just be stuck in a guilty gear. Do you know how to solve the world? Jen asked bravely, sensing intuitively that this was a moment to be bold. <laughs> no, Jennifer, I don't. But I have hope that you can find the answer for me. But before all that, would you do something for me, right now? What? On the mattress in the bedroom, there's a wooden box. I want you to walk up to it, imagine all the guilt and shame you have, and imagine putting that guilt and shame into the box. Then, do it. Do what? Put your guilt and shame in the box. <laughs> I don't know how to do that. In this place, Jennifer? In this room? Whatever you imagine becomes real. I'm asking you to imagine your guilt and shame and put it in the box. Then what? With your permission, I'd like to hold on to that box for you. Who are you? Okay, we're focusing on you today, Jennifer. Perhaps another time we can focus on me. Now go. Please do this for me. Jen backed up into the bedroom. She had looked at the bed before and didn't notice the wooden box. It looked just like Sir Isaac's box. Pretty much identical. Same dimensions and everything. <sighs> Jen thought about Tiff. She thought about Flusher O'Malley. She thought about Antonio de Anconia, and how stupid and vulnerable she felt when her hair was shaved by those men and women in black. She thought about how naive and wrong-headed she was to reach out to touch Gimli when she was in the cave. She thought about how she missed her original hand, and grieved its loss. 
She thought about the leprechaun and how horrible it was to watch his eyes be burned out with molten coins. She thought also about Robin, how she had only made everything worse for him. She pictured Lorna von Schloss falling into that pit. If Jen had never come to the Druidry, Lori would still be alive. It was Jen's fault she was dead. But most of all, and much to her own surprise, Jennifer Dash thought about Scout further. Scout apparently was an orphan now, being shipped away to some undisclosed location. Jen felt guilt that this was Scout's lot in life. It was silly to feel guilty for that, but nevertheless she did. She felt shame that she'd left Scout. If she'd only stayed with Atticus and Scout, she could have protected Scout. She could have been something of a mother to her. In Jen's hands, a black, sticky muck seeped through her fingers. It felt cold and hollow in her hands. This black putrescence, the form of guilt, the look of shame. Her hands full, Jen waddled over and slowly slopped the icky stuff into the box. It was sticky like warm taffy, and it took a considerable amount of time to slop it all off. When she did, Jen closed the lid on the wooden box. It was full, absolutely full, to the brim. Thank you, the other Jen now standing behind her said. So what, what happens now, Jen asked. Picture in your mind wherever you want to be. Hold that place in your mind, and you'll be there. Just like that. Just like that. What about Marshall? Is he okay? He's in his own room, having his own conversation. Is this what happened to Lilith? Did she visit you, here? <laughs> Enough questions. Do you know where you want to go? Yes. Hold that thought. Hey guys, thanks for listening to episode 50 of Solve the World. As always, the sound effects and music you've just heard are all under Creative Commons licenses. Attribution for the music and sound effects can be found on our show notes page at DanteStack.com. Okay, it's going to be about a month before we get to episode 51. But worry not. Every week we'll have some new content for you, and I think it's going to be really interesting content, and it'll help all of us get closer together, if all goes well. So next week, we're going to do another noob recap. We've done a couple of these before, and this time specifically, I want to look at the mythology of Solve the World. 
You know, the show's thrown a lot of different ideas at us, so I want to just take a few minutes and kind of boil it down and hopefully get us all on the same page as far as what we should think about Leviathans and Pied Piper and, and the sacrificial system that seems to be going on. So next week I just want to do a tight little episode trying to get us all up to speed on that. In the meantime, if you have questions about the show or about how I make the show, send those in to me at DanteStack at gmail.com. Because in two weeks we're going to do a premium show called Solving the World Part 2. And this show is just completely dedicated to me answering your questions. So the more questions I get, the longer the show will be and, you know, the more interesting. So get those questions into me. Hurry, hurry, hurry. For those of you who are awesome and like Solve the World on Facebook and keep up with all the stuff we're posting there, you may have seen a few clues that I've dropped in recent days and weeks. And that's that we're trying to produce a Solve the World card game. Now right now we're working on those cards getting printed, so if all goes well, we'll be able to package those and sell those directly from our website at DanteStack.com. It's a quick little game, you play it with a deck of specialty cards, and it's set in the universe of Solve the World, so I think it's a lot of fun. Uh, I'm looking forward to you guys enjoying it. Um, I've had a lot of fun making it and testing it, and I'm really excited to see this hit the market. So be looking for that. Lastly, if you've listened to all 50 episodes, which I imagine you all have if you're listening to my voice now, you've listened to me talking to you for literally a day's worth of time. All 50 episodes add up to just around 24 hours of content. And I don't want to make the show or any of this seem like something where I'm asking for money or talking about the costs of time and money and expenses to produce the show. However, as of today, I'm putting a tip jar up on the upper right-hand column of DanteStack.com. So if you go to DanteStack.com, you'll see in the far right top corner a little icon that says tip jar. If you would like to tip me for the 24-plus hours you've listened, that would be awesome and would be a blessing for me and would go a long way for helping me continue to push this thing out week to week. If everyone who listens to this episode tipped me a dollar, all my expenses for making the show for the next several months would be covered. That would be awesome. Um, Anyone who tips $10 or more and leaves their email for me, I will induct them into the Solve the World Society. As we've talked about before, members of Solve the World Society get episodes a week in advance, as well as they get free access to the premium content we're beginning to put out and my hope is that in the new year i'll put out more and more premium content so there's a little bonus for you there by the way a ten dollar tip is paying 20 cents per episode so less than a quarter per episode so you know that's not really a big deal and it would help me out a lot so tip jar guys tip jar all right thanks for sticking with me thanks for sticking with jen through half of her adventure Um, I'm super looking forward to the second half. It's going to be gnarly and awesome and crazy and good. End of part two.